There are, are special places, particularly in the Old Testament prophets, that simply desire to give you an amazing picture of God. Um, so often we, we get used to these pictures of God in the New Testament and don't uh, always observe them as characteristics of God that you see in the Old Testament. And this idea of the abounding nature of God's grace uh, is portrayed so beautifully in the book of, of Ezekiel. And uh, we're going to take a good look at that tonight and a little bit of an unusual lesson because the, the point of the text is just to see God and to really see how God deals with his people and to allow that to be a transforming effect uh, in your life. And so uh, tonight we're going to be in Ezekiel 19 as well as in Ezekiel 20. Uh, and we're going to spend a lot of time really in Ezekiel 20. But uh, I want to do a little bit of a setup to, the, to this picture. First, you can remember how the Apostle Paul uh, puts forward such a beautiful statement about God and talking about the problem of our sin. And as our sin increased, the picture that God has for us is that grace abounded all the more so that sin reigned in death, but grace might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And you have in Ezekiel a, a picture of how that was going to happen. And, and the picture of how God was constantly being gracious to his people. You get a sense of how bad things were in, in Ezekiel chapter 19. You'll notice in Ezekiel 19 and in verse 1, it just simply says to take up a lament for the princes of Israel. This is going to be ultimately two parables that are lamentations against the final king's uh, of Judah in the first half from verse nine to ver from verse two to verse nine, uh, you have in this first parable a description of a lion, and it sounds like he's devouring and he's able to destroy. But then ultimately, that lion is 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 taken by hooks and is carried away. And if you were in Israel's history, you would know, well, that's what happens to Jehoahaz. He uh, is captured by the, the Egyptians and he is hauled off into captivity. Well, the parable continues about how another lion arose and essentially he's able to devour and destroy. But then the same outcome happens to him, except he's taken by hooks to Babylon, which is what happens to the next two kings of Judah, Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim have those things take place where they're hauled off into Babylon. The second parable then concludes in verses 10 through 14, and it describes King Zedekiah. And it sounds like things are kind of okay. In verse 10, your mother was a like a vineyard vine in the vineyard planted by the water. Uh, verse 11, strong stems became rulers, scepters. Uh, it sounds like things are going okay for Zedekiah, and it is for a time. He, he reigns for a decent amount of time, but you'll notice in verse 12, but the vine was plucked up in fury and cast to the ground, and the east wind dried up its fruits, and they were stripped off and withered. And as for, the, for its strong stem, Fire consumed it, and now it's planted in a wilderness, in a dry and thirsty land. And so you get a picture that even Zedekiah's reign as it comes is not going to have any fruitful outcome. And the chilling words that would have been given are at the end of this lamentation as God is telling his people who are in captivity, even though you still have kings, it's not going to last. They are all going to be carried off 
They're all going to be taken away. And I want you to notice verse 14, the very last line there. It says, so that there remains in it no strong stem, no scepter for its ruling. And what God just said is that's the end of the kings. After Zedekiah, that's it. There's a cutting off of the line. No scepter for its ruling. There remains no strong stem. Which may be helpful when you think about how you have the prophets talking about these, this new roots or sprout or stem that would spring up. And that Isaiah talks about is that there's going to have to be someone who's going to come along to restore this king line. But right now it looks like all hope is lost. Because of the wickedness of the kings and the wickedness of the people, we are putting an end to what appears to be the king line of David and what appears to be the end of the nation. Now that sets up something that's really unusual is here's Ezekiel going around saying it's over and done. Jerusalem's going to fall. God's presence has left. Visualizing that vision of the throne room leaving and not returning. He's out there in the mountain. Here's a picture of your final four kings are all going to be taken away either by Egypt or by Babylon. And there's not going to be a king after that. Now, I want you to notice a strange thing happens in chapter 20 and in verse one, it says some of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat by me. <laughs> I, I could never have been a prophet. I just would sit there and be like, really, now you're going to come ask and ask the Lord what he wants now that we're in this condition. And now that God has said that there is no more hope and that Jerusalem is doomed and the temple is going to be destroyed and God is not with his people. Oh, hey, let's ask God something. And so that's what they do. They come to Ezekiel and they want to inquire of the Lord. But what is fascinating is in verse three, God asked this question back. Thus says the Lord God. Is it to inquire of me that you have come? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired by you. <laughs> You're not going to talk to me now about all of this. Now you want to ask me a question? We are far too late now. You really want to inquire me? I am not going to be inquired by you. But since he has the leaders of, of the people here in Ezekiel's midst, God is not going to lose the opportunity that stands before him. And so I want you to notice that what God does is he tells a story. And he tells the story of Israel's history. And I want you to listen to these two key parts about Israel's repetition and God's repetition. Notice the beginning here in, in verse 5. So say to them, thus says the Lord, on the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. And on that day, I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into the land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And I said to them, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Notice how God is taking us all the way back to when Israel was in Egyptian slavery. And he came to them and said, I'm making a promise to you. I will be your God. I am the Lord your God. And I have scouted out a land for you and it is flowing with milk and honey and I'm going to take you there. Now I ask of you one thing. He says there in verse 7, get rid of these idols of Egypt that you have been defiling yourself with. 
because we're going to go to the promised land. Notice Israel's response in verse 8. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Did you ever read the Exodus and think that they started out okay at least? Actually, they didn't. They didn't even start out okay. Here they're already rebelling against God and saying, no, we're not going to get rid of our idols. We're not going to throw them away. And they rebelled against God. And I want you to notice what God does next. Then I said, I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. God said, I'm going to just wipe them out right here in Egypt. That would have been a short book. Exodus would have ended there at about chapter three. <laughs> Just there you go. They're done. They refuse to put away their idols. Look at verse nine. <clears throat> but I acted for my name's sake that they should not, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived in whose sight I made myself known to them and bringing them out of the land of Egypt. Here God says, I swore that I would wipe them out, but because of my name, my reputation, and my glory, I did not give them what they deserved. Wrath should have been expended in Egypt, but rather it didn't. So verse 10, so I led them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness, and I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live and my Sabbaths they greatly profane. Notice again, God brings them into the wilderness and says, I am giving you all the laws that you need so that you can have life and be in covenant with me. And it says in verse 13, but they rejected my rules and did not walk in my statutes. The end of verse 13, then I said, <clears throat> I would pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. Now that one is recorded. We remember that one. Remember Moses is dealing with that God with the golden calf incident says, step aside. It is time to deal with them. And here you see that recorded, I would end them. I would pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness and make a full end of them. Verse 14, but I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight had brought them out. Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land that I had given to them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. Because they rejected my rules and did not walk in my statutes and profane my Sabbaths. For their heart went after their idols. Nevertheless, my eye spared them. And I did not destroy them or make a full end of them in the wilderness. So notice again, God says, I, I, I passed over it in Egypt and I brought you into the wilderness they rejected my laws and they still haven't gotten rid of the idols. And he says, I should have poured out my wrath. But again, for my name's sake, for my glory, I chose not to do that. And I did not make a full end of you. Instead, what I told you is that you, that generation, would not enter into 
the wilderness. I mean, into the promised land, but would remain in the wilderness. Notice verse 18. I said to their children in the wilderness, do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, nor keep their rules, nor defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules and keep my Sabbaths holy, that they may be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. So God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give your children a chance. Since you are not wanting to go into the wilderness, the next generation, you will have a choice. And if you've studied the book of Numbers, you might have thought they did a whole lot better. They didn't do any better. That's what the next line tells us. You will notice in verse 21. But the children rebelled against me, and they did not walk in my statutes, and were not careful to obey my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. They profane my Sabbaths. Then I said, I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the wilderness. But I withheld my hand and acted for, my, for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the nations and disperse them through the countries because they had not obeyed my rules but had rejected my statutes and profaned my Sabbaths and their eyes were not set on, and their eyes were set on their fathers' idols. So notice the same picture, same problem, same solution. It's the very words of Moses coming through. You can't wipe them out because your name will not be glorified in the world. Instead, your name will be blasphemed in the world. And so God keeps withholding deserved judgment and deserved wrath on the people. For his own name's sake. So you're seeing it not only in Egypt or with that generation who was in the wilderness or the second generation in the wilderness. Now, here we are catching up to present day and present time. And they've been in the land for all these years. And we know they didn't do very well because they've been kicked off the land. Where is Ezekiel and where are the people? They're in Babylon. They're not even in Jerusalem or in Judah because of their sins. And so you will notice that this leads to God's message to them as he wants to kind of bring it into the, the modern time of now that you were in the promised land, did anything get better? Verse 27, therefore, son of man, speak to the house of Israel and say to them, thus says the Lord God. In this also, your fathers blaspheme me by dealing treacherously with me. For when I had brought them into the land that I swore to give them, then wherever they saw any high hill or any leafy tree, there they offered their sacrifices and there they presented the provocation of their offering. There they sent up their pleasing aromas and there they poured out their drink offerings. By the way, that's not a good thing. <laughs> they are going to every high hill and every tree and worshiping Baals and Asherah with their pleasing aromas and sacrifices to all of their idols and to all of their gods. And so the point is that when they come into the land, absolutely nothing has changed. They're still keeping to the idolatry. They're still rebelling against the Lord. And that's what you see him say in verse 30. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, Will you defile yourselves after the manner of your fathers and go whoring after their detestable things? When you present your gifts and offer up your children in the fire, you defile yourselves with all of your idols to this day. Now watch what God says. 
And shall I be inquired by you, O house of Israel? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. You think now I'm going to allow you to talk to me when your heart has been full of rebellion? You and the previous generation and the previous generation and the previous generation and just keep saying previous generation all the way back to Egypt, all the way back. To Exodus 1, God says, they've been full of idols and have always rebelled against me and have never done what I've said and have always profaned my Sabbaths and never cared to follow my statutes and laws, even though it would give them life. They've obeyed none of it. And then notice what is in the hearts of the people that God now says. Look at verse 32. What is in your mind will never happen. And you're like, okay, well, what are they thinking? God goes, I'm never going to let happen what you're thinking. Look at verse 32. Here's their thought. Let us be like the nations, like the tribes of the countries, and worship wood and stone. And he goes, I'm not going to let you inquire of me. I know your heart. I know your motives. I know here we are in, in, in captivity still and what's in the hearts of the people, but to keep their idolatry, to continue to worship their false gods. And he says, I know that's what's in your heart. And I want you to think about what God says here, because this is the, the transition of the chapter. God says, but I'm not going to let that happen. Now, here's what I want you to think about. How's God going to do that? The whole history of Israel is this. The whole history of Israel is worshiping wood and stone, rejecting and rebelling against God, going after their own idols. And it's still in the hearts of the people and has not been cleaned out, even though they're being presently judged by the Babylonian invasion, they still want their idols. And yet somehow God says, I'm not going to let you do what's in your heart. So what's God's solution? Well, here's the beauty of what you start seeing God talk about here. Verse 33. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I will be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you were scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. <laughs> Two things that I want you to see. Now, the end of chapter 19 said, no more rulers. The, the, the scepter is gone. The scepter is removed and the stem has been burned. But notice what God's first solution is. He, he says, I will be your king. And that is a very, I don't have time, but I would love to spend a lot of time there. That's the gospel. Isaiah 52 and verse 7 to proclaim the good news is to proclaim your God reigns. And here is Ezekiel proclaiming the gospel. I will be king over you. But I want you to notice the imagery of how he's going to do that. He says, I will be king over you with a mighty arm and outstretched hand. Does that remind you of something? That's the terminology of the Exodus. 
When God came in to rescue his people in Egypt, he said it's going to be with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And remember, he poured out his wrath on Egypt and be able to set the people free. And God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do that again. I'm going to set myself up as king. So no more of the this uh, human king thing. I'm going to be your king. And I'm going to use the same power, the same might and same arm that was used in the Exodus to now set my people free this time. First picture. Second picture. Verse 35. And I will bring you into the wilderness of my peoples. And there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. As I enter into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. And I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the, of the covenant. I will purge out the rebels from among you and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they shall not enter the land of Israel, and then you will know that I am the Lord. Second great picture that's, that's drawn out is notice not only do you have the Exodus sequence of I will deliver you with the mighty hand and outstretched arm, but notice the same imagery is then I'm going to bring you into the wilderness for judgment. And there are two pictures that he uses to try to indicate what he means by that. The first one you, you saw there in verse 37 where it says, I will make you pass under the rod. That is a, a shepherding Image, a, a term that's used to essentially count and identify the sheep that are yours. I'm not a shepherd, nor have I played one on TV, so I know nothing about shepherding. But reading what the scholars say about what shepherds did is they would take a rod and use that as the means by watching them come in to count them as they would go. You can imagine how easy it would be to lose count. So you got to have something to mark it off. Okay, that's counting that one, and then that one, and then that one. And he says, I'm going to do that with you. I'm going to ensure those who belong to me are going to enter in. And you will notice that there is a contrast that's given to that in the next verse, in verse 38, where he says, but I'm also going to purge out the rebels among you. Now, here's one thing I want you to think about. I know when we started the Gospel of Matthew in our Sunday mornings was a long time ago. But think about what John the Baptizer was running around saying. When John the Baptizer is on the scene and he's talking about the one who is greater than him, who is to come. And he says, there's going to be a baptism of the Holy Spirit and there's going to be a baptism of fire. And he also then furthers that by saying a gathering of wheat into the barn, but the chaff are going to be burned up. Notice that's exactly what Ezekiel is saying. First, I will be their king. And I'm going to count and identify those who belong to me and they're going to come in. But I'm purging out those who do not. I'm purging out the rebels. Those who maintain their idolatry, they will no longer be counted and will not be part of this people than sheep that I am bringing in. In fact, you see that in verse 39 when he says, As for you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, Go serve every one of his idols now and hereafter, if you will not listen to me. But my holy name you shall no more profane with your gifts and your idols. Now that sounds strange for God to say that. Just as God just said, go worship your idols. Uh, as a parent, have you ever done something like that with your kid? 
You're so exhausted by their disobedience, you just go, fine, go do it. You're going to see. Here comes your consequences. Fine, disobey. Watch what happens. Go ahead. And notice God's doing that here. You don't want to belong to me? Go ahead and worship your idols now and hereafter. But notice the, the consequence that he draws there in verse 39 when he says, but my holy name, you're not going to profane anymore with your idols and your gifts. You go ahead and go your own way. I'm going to let you go your own way, but don't think you belong to me. Don't think you're part of this covenant, this bond of the covenant that I've created with my sheep who I've counted under the rod. And notice in verse 40, there's a picture of them being described as as gathering in on the mountain. Verse 40, for on my holy mountain, the mountain height of Israel declares the Lord God, all the house of Israel, all of them shall serve me in the land. That already tells you we must have a new definition of Israel since the prior sentence just said, (laughs) all of you rebels, you're not a part of this anymore. We must be moving toward a new view of, well, who is the true Israel, but those who have been purged of those idols and are truly seeking God. And so he says, all of them will be there on that mountain serving me. Listen to verse 40. There I will accept them and there I will require your contributions and the choices of your gifts with all your sacred offerings. Here is God saying, I'm going to receive their worship. They're going to belong to me. I'm going to be their king. We're going to purge out the false and I'm going to bring them together and they're all going to worship me and I'm going to receive their offerings and their sacrifices and their contributions. And then listen to verse 41. And as a pleasing aroma, I will accept you. Not just your offerings, but you. That reminds you of uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where you are presenting yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, because this is our reasonable worship or act of service. Here is Ezekiel prophesying that and saying, here's what's going to happen. These new people, God will receive their worship, and not only that, they will be received by God. They will be accepted by God as a living sacrifice, as a pleasing aroma before God. We ought to think of our lives like that. You know, sometimes we pray that we are, our worship is pleasing to God as a pleasing aroma, and that's great. That's right here in the text as well. But think about yourself that way, that you are a pleasing aroma to God in how you live your life, that God is receiving that life. And notice what that's going to do. Verse 42, you shall know that I am the Lord and I bring you into the land of Israel, the country that I swore to give to your fathers. And there you shall remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves And you will loathe yourselves for all the evils that you have committed. Now, that's not the first time Ezekiel said that, but it's useful to see it again. The idea of repentance begins with the feeling of guilt. He says, my people are going to be crushed by their sins. They are going to loathe what they've done. They're going to be upset about the prior life that they lived. And they're going to want to do something about that. And so they will loathe themselves for all the evils that they have committed. Now, I asked at the beginning of this, 
How is this going to change the people? What, what, they're all wanting to be idolaters. And here's God saying, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. And the dramatic change is underscored right here now in verse 44. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake and not according to all your evil ways nor according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. The thing that is supposed to be so transforming in our lives is to see God showing his glory by not giving us what we deserve. For God to make a promise and say, you're going to loathe your sins and I'm not going to deal with you according to those sins. I'm going to deal with you according to my glory. I'm going to deal with you according to my reputation. I'm going to deal with you according to my name. And, and friends, I want you to think about as God describes why we would change our hearts and why he would be worthy of our worship and why we should give him glory and honor because of how he doesn't give us what is what we are due. Think about just history of humanity. <laughs> and then thinking about how God retells this of, of, of the history of Israel. Just take a moment to think about really the, the history of God. God has never dealt with people according to their ways. You can just start at the very beginning of the Bible. He didn't deal with Adam and Eve according to their ways. It should have just all ended at chapter 3. We'd have a very short Bible and none of us would be alive. Adam and Eve, they sin, they die. That's the end. God tried. No one wants to follow him. It just would have been a very simple story because that is the history of humanity. And then think about how God told the story. My people whom I gave my laws and showed my power and worked miracles and sent my leaders powerfully and even gave them prophets rebelled over and over and over again. They rebelled in Egypt and God says they should have died there, but I didn't do it. And then when I brought them into the wilderness, they should have died there, but I didn't do it. And then with the next generation, I should have killed them in the wilderness, but I didn't do it. I brought them into the promised land anyway. And then I should have destroyed them there because of their sins, but I didn't do it. And just think about rolling forward to where we are in the gospel of Matthew. John the baptizer is now running around. And what does he have to tell everybody? You all are doing great and you finally learned the lesson. Good job. No. Repent. Because you're still terrible. And you still haven't learned. And the one who's coming is going to bring judgment and salvation and you need to get ready. And yet still God did not deal with those people according to their ways. And of course, the most notable is Jesus. When humanity puts Jesus on the cross, God should have taken the universe and exploded it. For our high-handed rebellion against his son. There is no way any moment should have continued 
the moment Jesus said, it is finished, it should have just been done. The grace of God is absolutely staggering. And it's what the scriptures are constantly trying to impress upon our hearts. As we read Romans 5 and 21, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's all you read page after page after page is God's amazing grace. Second Corinthians chapter five and verse 18. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us a ministry of reconciliation so that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. What is he doing? Not Counting their trespasses against them. This is what God has done for all of history. Not counting our trespasses against us, but instead entrusting to us a message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Over and over again, God is driving at this key truth. The way God would transform people who love sin to a people who love him is by constantly not giving us what we deserve. That's his plan. That's the way he's going to do it. And so, friends, every day is another day that God proclaims to the world that he will not bring his wrath and justice that we fully deserve. Every day that the sun goes up is just another day where God is not counting sins and not giving us what we deserve, not inflicting upon us the wrath that is due every day is another day that God proclaims to the world that he is the Lord, but he does not want to deal with us according to what we've done. Or as Mike reminded us from chapter 18 that we saw last week, God does not delight in the death of anyone. He does not delight in punishment. He delights in mercy and grace. And he has shown it again and again and again. He tells Israel's history of their constant rebellion and says, and now here's how you will know that I am the Lord. I will still not deal with you according to your evil ways or according to your corrupt deeds. And may that transform us to stop seeking sin. And to start seeking our Lord who wants a relationship with us. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, your patience is amazing. Your love is incomprehensible. And how you continue to show mercy for thousands and thousands and thousands of years to rebellious people is staggering. Lord, forgive us for our constant sinning and rebellion to you. And Lord, thank you 
for not dealing with us according to our deeds. Thank you for giving us another day that we can live for you. Thank you for giving us another day that we can repent from our sins. Thank you for giving us another day that we can turn from evil. Thank you for giving us another day that we can be made holy in your sight. Lord, forgive us for our sins. And Lord, we pray that you would transform that heart in us, that we would loathe sinning, that we would see you as our king, and that we would see that our idols are worthless, and that we will follow you because your mercy is so great. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll sing an invitation song. We invite you to come to the grace of God this very evening with an amazing picture that Christ is the answer to that. He is the king that Ezekiel was talking about, that God himself would be king and through him he would be able to bring that forgiveness to us and not deal with us as we deserve. What a wonderful savior we have. Would you come to him tonight? turning away from sins and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?